0: Welcome to my basement, everybody. We have a wonderful show for you today, celebrating all things Midway. And to celebrate the launch of an incredible documentary called Insert Coin, the filmmaker and game maker behind the movie, Josh Sway, joins us. But along with Josh our three exceptional guests. We've got the voice of the arcades, and specifically Midway Sports, Tim Kitsrow with us. How's it going, Tim? Boom shakalaka! How you doing? Uh, we, uh, <laughs> Great to see you. We've got the creator of NFL Blitz and NBA Jam, Mark Termel, with us, and we have the co-creator of Mortal Kombat, John Tobias with us. This is, uh, it's like I've put the super friends together to celebrate one of my favorite video game companies of all time. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Josh, I'm gonna start with you because this is really um, to celebrate your celebration of Midway. Uh, why was it important for you to put Insert Coin together? You know, there are a couple of things that, were, that
1: was really important for me. Uh, one was that, you know, you know, these were games that people grew up playing, that they loved a lot, and, 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 you, know, and you know, many of them are still super popular now. And I, I really felt like um, I wanted to tell the story behind how these games were made and the people behind them. You know, there, I never felt like there was one, like, holistic view of the output yeah. of midway games in that era and, and just arcades, you know, in general of the nineties. Um, the, the, second reason it was important was that, uh, you know, going, when I worked at midway, going into midway, I was kind of a fanboy already and stuff. And so I really looked up to these guys that I worked with. And so many years later, and I've known them for obviously for a really long time now, but, uh, but I, you know, I think the bonus of it was, um, being able to kind of, celebrate what they did
2: we
3: wanted to crush the player
1: we want to give them a greater challenge and just you know really show that hey these you know these are the people behind the games and really just bring them to the forefront.
0: That's awesome. Mark, you know, Josh, cause he was part of the teams over there at Midway and worked on a bunch of games with you guys. Uh, were you surprised that he was, you know, venturing into the, this uh, filmmaker direction? And, and did, did you think that it made sense for him to make this a project that he worked on? Yeah, actually uh, it was not a surprise at all because um,
2: uh, I believe Josh actually has a uh, kind of a film production uh, you know, education and background. And so when he was at uh, Williams Electronics Midway, um, you know, we worked on, um, you know, WrestleMania together. Uh, he was always keen on documenting and, uh, you know, getting the right clips uh, and kind of leading us on the the path of digitized graphics and, you know, how to get that content
0: uh, into the game. So it didn't surprise me at all when, when this started, uh, you know, Uh, John, talk to me about your uh, sort of early days with Midway, uh, because you guys were really young and and you were making games that were just rocking the whole world. What was it like to kind of start with the company? And uh, because it already had a history, it already Williams Electronics and Midway already had a massive 10 year or more success story through the 80s with all kinds of great games. Eugene Jarvis was already legend, I think, by the time you joined the company. What was it like for you joining Midway back then?
4: You know, it was actually kind of surreal, you know, because I I grew up in Chicago, and I was aware that there was a pinball manufacturing uh, plant, um, but I didn't know that there was actual video game development happening. And so um, a friend of mine, a guy by the name of John Vogel, who subsequently worked with us on uh, Mortal Kombat, he was hired there first, and he let me know that there was an opening. Um, for an artist. And so I came in and interviewed and actually interviewed with Mark um, and Eugene and, and a few of the other guys there um, and was fortunate enough to, to be hired. Um, but um, I was, yeah, I was right out of college. I was 19 years old. Um, Amazing. And yeah, and I you know, have been <laughs> in the industry ever since. So, um, but, you know, um, working with um, fellows like, you know, Eugene Jarvis and Mark, I wasn't totally aware of Eugene. Once I heard of the, you know, the games that he was responsible for, I was in awe. Um, I had actually played a few of Mark's games on the 2600. So for me, it was kind of a dream come true. I was, I was, I think for me at the time I was, I dabbled in computer graphics and back then there was not a real curriculum that you could take in school, you know, at the time, but I was also, um, a comic book illustrator. And so it was kind of the merging of those skills that, that landed me the job. And I was, again, I was fortunate enough that, that Mark and Eugene, um, you know, brought me on board.
0: Now, Tim, you uh, had already done a bunch of acting and uh, you you know, you were obviously familiar, I think with the video game space, but when you were brought in to work on these midway games, was NBA jam, the very first game that you uh, did some voice work on.
3: I'd started out in the uh, pinball division in the factory across the street and was just amazing. enough to uh, start out doing, uh, uh Ooh, Gilligan, maybe we could bribe Kona. Little uh, Mr. Howell got me got me the gig. And once I was in, I was with the very talented John Hay, who was responsible for the great uh, uh, score for NBA Jam. And he was uh, putting all the music and sound effects and uh, and hiring the talent for the uh, pinball games. So when NBA Jam came along, that was the first video game that I was involved in. And fortunately, it was something where Mark just trusted John and my you know reputation there for, I I think I'd done 10 or 15 pinball games at that point. And this would never happen today. A title like NBA Jam, <clears throat> they'd be auditioning everywhere. But Mark just said, yeah, Tim's good. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure Mark can pr- probably tell a better story, but uh, I was one of the luckiest guys in the world. Right place at the right time, but I had a, you know enough respect uh, in the department. So w- w- couldn't be more exciting. Boom shakalaka!
0: What was it like to hear Boom Shakalaka in an arcade while people were playing the game? It
3: was my Thor hammer. You know, it was, yeah. uh, you know, I, I finally discovered something that and I kind of recognized pretty quickly I would, I would be known for it. I, I went to the arcades after the game came out and I watched uh, people playing the uh, run and gun Konami and I, and it seemed like a kind of a big crowd around there. And, and I heard that the announcer go, nice shot for two lays it up, and I was this guy in lithium or something? I mean, come on, you're <laughs> supposed to be a sports announcer. So I went over to the NBA Jam area, and there was a bigger crowd around there, and I heard, you know, ugly shot puts up a brick, boom shakalaka. And I went, yeah, man, that, that's going to work. <laughs> My favorite that's story, amazing. though, is, and I, t- I tell him the, the insert coin, is I couldn't help but sit behind 10 or 15 people playing and want to start mimicking the you know the dialogue and stuff you know rejected get that stuff out of here boom shakalaka guy turns around and says hey man you sound like the dude in the game i go dude i am the dude boom shakalaka it was a (laughs) drop the mic moment and and to this day i still have fun doing that
0: that is amazing man Uh, mark did you know that nba jam and and nfl blitz were going to be these phenomena. could you feel it in your bones I mean you'd already been involved around hits you knew what was going to be successful but did you know that those two games specifically were going to be rocket fuel for for the whole video game industry yeah it's
2: interesting uh you know going back to uh john uh starting in the company with smash tv uh george petro uh you know who was a veteran was on the narc project went on to do great things uh he told me when john and i were going to put that game on location that will know the first night whether you have a hit or not. Oh, no wow. fucking way. You're not going to know if we have a hit the first night. Uh, but yeah. you, in the coin-op business is like that, where you know, in in the case of that game, we saw people, you know, going back to the change machine, getting their quarters, putting them in. The game would crash. They'd go back and get more quarters. Uh, and so the same thing happened with NBA Jam. Uh, the first night we had that game out on location. Uh, which is usually about two months, maybe three months before it's kind of really ready to ship. You know, so we get a lot of testing in and fixing. Uh, we saw right off the bat that it was, you know, resonating with the players, and you know they were jumping up and down and you know kind of screaming. Uh, I remember one player; he had picked a John Stockton, and uh, you know he said to his opponent, "You know, don't even put the ball on the floor next." you know, next to John Stockton. I'll take it every time. Uh, And And I realized all the players are the same right now. (laughs) Like there's, you know, the expectation is that these players are distinct. Uh, So go back and, you know, keep on working on the game. But yeah, we pretty much knew right off the bat on on any of the point-up games, uh, whether it was going to be a hit or not uh, the very first night.
0: That was you know, awesome.
3: You know what? I love that that story because it reminds me of the music when, when you have a hit and back in the old days uh, you had the jukebox, you know, and if and if it went on the jukebox in a crowded place, you know, right. and people, people keep, keep putting the quarters in, I mean that was that was Mark's, you know, you can't get no satisfaction. You know, it's like the quarters yeah. just kept coming and they never stopped.
0: And it's so funny, we don't live in that reality anymore, right? Like everything is, like the big challenge for every medium now is discoverability. Is like, how do people find out about things? And there's something to this idea of, uh, you know, physicalizing focus testing like this. And everything is focus tested, but it's it's sort of disseminated over the internet. But when you can put it all into a room and just see people gravitate to something, there's something profound about that, isn't there? It is. I mean, it's like a
2: democratic thing. We used to say that, uh, well, it's true, no amount of marketing or hype would affect the sales of, of a coin up game. Right. Uh, because, you know, we had only a hundred or so customers that were the distributors. They would order one game. You'd say, hey, we have Mortal Kombat 2 coming out. How many do you want? And they'd say, I will take one. You know, because they want to go and put it in a location, watch it for a few days, a week, and then they'll come back and say, oh, did I say one? I really meant 1,000, you know?
4: <laughs> I was just going to add that, um, you know, one thing ab- about uh, CoinOp in particular was that it was super organic, you know, because I remember MK specifically, we had no cabinet art. It was just a black cabinet with like a Xerox marquee that we yeah. put in and, and, and turned on. And um, and there's no, you know, there's no pre-advertisement. There's nothing. You just turn it on and, yeah. and players will either gravitate or not. And so, um, you know, in terms of like testing, that was sort of a true test. You know, there's zero marketing. It's all just, you know, the effort that we had put into the development of the game and this black cabinet in an arcade and the hope that players will gravitate toward it. And and as Mark said earlier, you know, you would learn pretty quickly whether you were going to be successful or not. I mean, I don't know that a game that dogged its first weekend test ever went on to to be successful, Mark, you, you yeah. might know better than me, but I don't remember that happening. Yeah, Every
0: so time. it's just like Hollywood, right? It's a, it's very similar to a, an opening box office weekend, I I would imagine, right? It's the same kind of same kind of machinery at play there. I think, Josh, yeah. you were around the, this culture and these people and these stories, um, but I imagine that you know, and, and some of it must have been legendary, but what I know about the video game industry is that it's always forward-looking. It doesn't always take the time to kind of reflect and think on, you know, on what has yeah. been achieved and, and you know, uh, sort of perpetuate its its legends the way that it should yeah. in some ways. I'm I'm curious about you know the stories that you picked up for this documentary. What was the most revelatory, or the most surprising, or most enjoyable one for you?
1: That's a really tough one. Um, you know, I think I think the most rel- I would say revelatory was how important uh, narc was. You know, like yeah. I, I, I like before I worked at you know Williams Midway. Um, i knew of narc i remember seeing it and just getting kind of like a visceral reaction to it and so but you know but after that you know by the time i got there mortal Kombat was a big success already nba jam was already big and stuff and so so i kind of took narc for granted and so you know as i started developing the the film and interviewing more people um it dawned on me that's like oh this a lot of the technology for midway games moving forward in the 90s really came from narc and not just technology but just the attitude about things yeah. you know, this is you know yeah. jarvis coming back and he's just like hey i'm gonna you know yeah i gonna, i'm gonna bring video games back to williams because it was primarily pinball at that point after the uh the video game crash and so him coming in and wanting to do this crazy you know 80s inspired uh action flick that's full of violence and you're 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 shooting pimps and things like that. It's, <laughs> it's like it's like it's like gta you know 0. 0.5 you know something like that um, but it was interesting because it's like the, the you know, the digitizing technology that it, that it brought forward, all the tools that were created, um, you know, in-house for it, that, you know, that affected games later on at Midway. And then just, again, just Jarvis coming back and, and with his crazy, you know, genius attitude. And, you know, we, we talk about in, in the film how it was a very punk rock attitude. It's like, hey, we're just going to do things that entertain ourselves. And hopefully everyone else will like it. Um, I think that was that was really neat to see and I and you know going into the film I kind of had an idea that that may be the case but to really you know get that solid information was really nice uh, nice to discover
0: when I watched the movie I was surprised to find out there was a bit of um a, a conflict I think between was it Bali and midway or Bali and <laughs> yeah. um, and Williams
1: yeah it was a Bali midway and williams actually that I would say that that was also very new to me because uh, i that was before my time there so i didn't know a whole lot about that then. and and uh, it's it's it was interesting and jarvis is just like yeah you know, he's just such a besides being a great guy he's just a character and uh, and him to this day on camera was talking about how yeah we just thought they were idiots or losers and he just he says it was such venom it's kind of like dude like this is like a long time ago you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so yeah it, it, was, it was interesting and you know the you know it, they're, yeah, they're, it's kind of like the cubs and white Sox. they're cross-town rivals, then two big arcade companies in the same
0: town it's yeah it was pretty nuts and mark uh, you I, were there through through all of that weren't you
2: yeah actually i was i started in 89 wow spring of 89. So I kind of missed out on some of that valley, you know, the, the pinball kind of rivalry and, you know, threatening to purchase. And there was some, you know, poaching back and forth. Uh, so I kind of missed out on that rivalry part. Um, but we certainly had a lot of competition inside the studio trying to one up, you know, the other game. Um, but, uh, yeah, just one quick thing on, on the narc, uh, it definitely inflected, uh, you know, the blood that we put into smash TV. Um, you know, we, I remember being really proud, you know, calling Eugene over into my office when I had, uh, you know, mutoid man blowing up and, you know, spewing blood out of this, you know, torso. Uh, and we were just trying to go crazy over the top. You know, John had just this amazing, I mean, he's an amazing artist. And so his, uh, The limbs coming off characters, the blood, you know, chunks coming out of Mutoid Man, things like that were really directly related back to what NARC, uh, you know, got away with.
0: It's one of my favorite games of all time, man. I can't I can't get over it. I work with um, uh, students quite a bit at the Vancouver Film School here in uh, in Vancouver. And every um, new class, somebody they have to create games every class. Somebody creates a dual stick shooter and i always bring up have you played smash tv have you played robotron and a lot of these kids they just they just don't know right they don't they don't fall that's why your movie's so important josh like it really yeah. shines a spotlight on some seminal work there uh john i want to talk a little bit about um uh transitioning from uh it, it, it almost like there was this natural sort of progression pivot kind of thing that was happening with NBA Jam, NFL Blitz. But I think Mortal Kombat, we can also point to, it was like a new era for the company, but also for video games. And you lived through all of that. And you were what, 22, 23 years old, putting putting these things together. What, what was it like watching this dream? And here you are, I think you were illustrating and conceiving the characters and the mythology. And suddenly the world claims it as their own and and what was it like being in the in the middle of this storm and seeing all of this stuff happen around you
4: i get asked uh, that question a lot and i think you know when i think back at that time um you know ed and i uh were always so busy working that all the hoopla around the you know the the explosion of the game in terms of you know um, its place in pop culture and stuff I was I was aware of it, but um, but we were so focused on the next iteration of the game and the next iteration of the game that I me- I remember even when the film was in production as as much of um, you know as much as I was in awe of of what was happening um, I remember we were always kind of thinking about the work that we had to do on whatever it was we were working on at the time and I think that had a lot to do with keeping us sort of grounded. You know, I mean, if if you know, Ed, he's he's very, yes, um, you know, sort of very grounded and very humble about you know what it was that you know that we were responsible for creating, but we were always so focused on 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 our work, and I think that yeah. was that was uh, endemic of everyone in the studio. You know, Mark had that work ethic um, early on. Eugene had it. Everybody was just always so heads down and 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 lost in in their work, um, and and fortunately, we enjoyed it. You know, we enjoyed the process enough so that it didn't really feel like work. It just felt like, you know, like life. And um, and and you know, I think because of that, I think, um, you know, the again the the explosion of it all. Um, while I was aware of it, I don't. I I was always sort of you know um, grounded in, in in the work involved. so. Well,
0: it's clear that it was a, a magic place. I mean, you guys made mm-hmm. magic there. So whatever the ingredients were it was, it was happening. And Tim, I know that, that your work was, uh, you you know, kind of as a, an outside vendor sort of providing elements in there, Mm -hmm. were you aware of, the talent, you know, when you'd walk into the studio to record your book, would you see like, yeah. I mean, these were video game masterpieces that these guys were creating.
3: It, it, it's pretty much as John said, for all of us, like, for, you know, I was only seeing the world, you know, the, the way I uh, had come to Chicago, trying to get a gig as an actor. You know, this was a side gig. It was fun. It was cool. It wasn't until the years later that, that we're gaining the perspective. And I, and since meeting with Mark at the GDC to learn. And because of Josh's film, he said, punk rock, that's the essential thing. This was the rebel the radical the anti-establishment thing the, the way punk rock music was you know the late 70s it was kind of building sure. on that so if you think of when we were talking about going to like the Frank's place for games like a dirty dark place what's that it's, it's CBGB's you know who who shows up there like the Ramones or the Sex Pistols when you had a hit like Mark said the first night you knew it same as CBGB's the place we worked in i was in a factory the back of a factory so it, that's kind of like the motown aspect you know motown was up there in a blue collar lunch pail city which chicago is like he so had all this talent Bordy, barry gordy you know uh smoky robinson that's like mark and john those guys they're just machines pumping out hit after hit after hit and they had yeah. no time to, to take it in as john said it was just like that's what you did and that yeah. was you know that 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 was the music scene that was that rock and roll element They could never really happened again on the level that midway did you know the bigger companies are just there's just too much sanitizing too many you know bean counters and everything else the indie games may have elements of that but on that large right. scale you'll never see that again
0: you know? How much does Chicago play in that, you guys? Because uh, John, you're from Chicago. Tim, you're from Chicago. You're a native. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. How, I mean, there, there. It was certainly a, a different sensibility. I was already in the in 2000 when I first visited Midway. I had already visited lots of studios and teams and things, but there was a different sensibility at Midway. You know, it was you could feel it in the air. I don't, I don't know if you guys could, but as you know, a West Coaster, it definitely felt like a different place to work. But now that you've had time to reflect on it, how much does Chicago play in that?
1: You know, I'm also from the West Coast. And so, Mm. like, I have a little bit of perspective in terms of, like, how different things are. But I think, you know, the Chicago Midwestern attitude is, you know, like really played. I felt played a lot in in terms of the work ethics. um, You know, you're talking about. Chicago, which was traditionally an industrial town, you know, manufacturing back in the day. So there was a, there was a certain personality there of just getting your work done. Um, and also, you know, we, you know, we were in the back of of a pinball factory. So we saw like just how hard it was to, you know, to work in a factory. We saw the assembly line, you know, making games was not just software. Like we saw the physical parts of it. And so, yeah, you know, so I think that the, you know when John is saying about how we were always kind of hunkered down to do our work, is that, yeah, the work we did was really hard. but but it, we were always tempered in that we see how hard other people are working if not harder seeing that i think that really affected our our work ethic
0: Eugene had a, um, a you know a career that that predated all of you guys had already sort of been there with the video game kind of boom and i guess the bust you know but the bust i think was just a it was like embryonic fluid to kind of refashion what video games were all about in in some ways how much was he instrumental in sort of setting a tone and setting a vibe at Midway
2: one thing first on the Chicago and the grittiness, uh, the factory was really uh, Neil Nicastro's, you know, he felt it was his secret ingredient mm. where, you know, he kept everybody in that gritty environment. He didn't want to have new office chairs. We're working on cement, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we're walking through <laughs> the factory the cafeteria with all yeah. the you know, hourly workers and it's, you know, we're sharing the same bathrooms. It's all like just a mess,
0: you know. At- and that was he, he conceived it that way. He wanted it that way.
2: So. I thought that, you know, he thought that was great. Oh, wow. Seeing, uh, Eugene Jarvis and I walking out uh, after midnight, one night, out of the factory. And there were loading bay doors uh, where, you know, the trucks would back in to take the pinballs out. And we saw there where the light was on and there was a Cadillac, you know, backed up in there. And we saw, you know, we, we looked over and Neil Nicastro Castro was uh, working in the loading dock and he was putting like, you know, carpeting on his dashboard or something. <laughs> I was there. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and that was, you know, he was he was in there working. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. Uh, and he loved that about uh, the setup. When we hmm. talk about rats, you know, he loved it. When it was time to you know refresh, it was you know green paint on the wall and yellow lines on the cement. You know,
3: <laughs> you know, there's there's a there's a Breaking Bad element here. Mark always said that you know uh, creating a NBA Jam was like you know you were putting crack out on the street. He needed it to be so addictive. Get that next quarter. Get that next quarter. He Research knew what the, yeah. he knew what the kids wanted. He knew the pulse. <laughs> What better place than a Breaking Bad, kind of an industrial park on the river, a meth factory, a meth lab, <laughs> factory <laughs> conditions to get our product out at night. <laughs>
4: Perfect. You know, it's it's, it's it's funny because for years um, I had never been exposed to West Coast game development. And so right. um, I think I was, I was well into my career before yeah. I had ventured out to the West Coast and visited, you know, maybe a studio or developer and saw How they were cushy it was exactly (laughs) right yeah and I thought yeah and and but part of me it's funny because I was a little jealous you know that 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 we were working in such a dive Um, yeah but then part of it was kind of like a chip on my shoulder it's like oh we don't need fancy chairs and tables (laughs) we work on crates. Yeah,
1: and and I re- stools, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, 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 re- I remember that. I remember when the the you know when Midway got the San Diego office and yep. when they bought Atari in the Milpitas. Out, I remember us visiting, and it's like, wait a second, they have like. You know, they have like clean vending machine. They have like you know, they get snacks. Like we didn't get snacks. But right. yeah, but you're right though. But I remember, but I remember thinking back as like, well, that's why they make shitty games. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> we, we have, we have Neil stuff. was <laughs> right. Neil was right. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. We knew when other developers would come in or you know potential partners, they were always shocked at the studio. <laughs> I couldn't believe you know what's happening, uh, and we would just tell them you know don't don't buy anything on the bottom row of the vending machine. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's the, the rats have their paws all over. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. What did Aerosmith think when they came in? They were probably right at home, right? <laughs> I, th- I think we cleaned up the place a bit. We <laughs>
1: did, yeah. There was a whole, like, two days of cleaning up. And then yeah. suddenly the, the shooting studio had, like, pinup up photos of women, like, everywhere. Just That's, just yeah. to keep... I think it was, like, on their, like, contract, like, claws or something like that.
2: And yeah, whiskey and whiskey and, and porn. <laughs>
3: yeah. Did they and did did they record in that little meat locker in the factory where we did jam and everything? Yeah, that, that was right. Yeah, it was it was not much bigger than a than a refrigerator in a in a modern home.
2: <laughs> but uh, circling back to your question on on Eugene and his impact, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's uh, you know he also like Neil embraced that that kind of gritty um, attitude and. You know, do everything internal, um, and so it uh, it set the tone.
0: It yeah. seems I, I just interviewed Eugenia like a month or two ago, and it seems that Roth Rills is sort of uh, carrying on a lot of that, and, yeah. and and you know, and staying true to the coin op roots and all that. And it's interesting, you guys. Uh, Josh, you brought up the Milpitas office. I, I I've been doing this so long that I actually visited that office back then. Yep. And I talked to Dan Van Eldrin, who was an Atari, I don't know if any of you guys remember him, but he was an Atari holdout uh, that had been there in the 70s. And he told me, and this blew my freaking mind, that they would make the games and then they would go into the warehouse and they'd put the cartridges together and stick them in the box so that they could be shipped out to the stores. Wow. And there's a physicality to the, the full distribution mechanism there that I think you guys all got to experience. You all got to experience it. You got to see these things get built and shipped out, and it's not just this thing transmitted into the ether. There's a physicality there, right? right. And that must that must be yeah. pretty cool. And I, I imagine all of you have some, uh, you know, mementos, maybe an arcade machine or two that dates back to to that era. That that must uh, that's very unique, and uh, you know, it's that, that must that's very special. And I, I wonder if uh, um, I mean, I certainly appreciate it. I'm sure that you guys do too. Uh, I guess I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm fawning over you guys like Chris Farley right now <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Victor, they,
3: <laughs> Victor I have my, one of my first memories of, of just being blown away by, by the whole experience that I'd kind of fallen into, as I said, you know, a bit of luck, the right time, right place. But doing Twilight Zone, I remember coming in for a late session and they had uh, shut the lights off in the factory, but there were about 100, 100, 200 games, Twilight Zones going on the floor. They leave on to just keep playing all night to, you know, to give them some, you know, it's like slamming doors in a car test place. To test and them, I'm yeah. walking through there hearing my voice, 200 Rod Serlings in a factory. Oh, man. Talking about the physicality, what voiceover person would ever have that experience of being in the Twilight Zone in Chicago on the river in an industrial park.
0: That's awesome. John, I want to talk about the, uh, you know, the groundbreaking technical challenges that you guys faced with Mortal Kombat because you'd already started to work with digitization um, and obviously Street Fighter had kind of rocked the world with fighting games and fighting games were becoming instrumental and and incredibly important in the video game space. And then you guys said, well, let's put a movie into the video game and let people control movie characters. Uh, That must have been, unbelievable work and unbelievably difficult work for you guys. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, dreaming that up, but achieving some of the goals that you set out for yourselves?
4: Well, you know, I think, so for starters with Mortal Kombat, I think we, um, so we were, we were beneficiaries of all the work, you know, Josh had talked about the work that was done on NARC. And so yeah. the technology behind that, the, you know, the the tools that were created for digitizing um, we, we inherited. Um, and I think Prior to MK, um, you know, I had worked with Mark on a couple of games and Smash TV in particular. All that stuff was hand drawn, and um, mm-hmm. we had purposely made a choice not to digitize. I think it was maybe the scale of the characters didn't really lend themselves well to dig- digitization, and so um, I had been sort of clamoring to to, um, to to take advantage of this technology that some of the other products were were um, were, were using, and so. For MK in particular, you know, because of the sort of the um, the schedule that, you know, Ed and I were working under, it was it was a little bit, um, um, you know, hurried. Um, we had to make some choices. And so the choices that that kind of forced us into making was, you know, we we had to do digitized um, graphics because there was no time to hand draw this stuff. Um, we did very little on the first uh, game. There's sort of a raw aesthetic to it. And that's because we purposely chose not to touch up the character graphics because there just was no time. And so mm. um, we just sort of um, let ourselves kind of fall into the, the, the raw quality of the digitized look. And I think that aesthetic, what you see in that first MK game is because of those choices. Or um, a lot of that stuff, you know, we didn't make those choices willingly. A lot of those choices we were forced into making because of the situation that we were in. And so we ended up benefiting from it. I mean, it, it, it affected not just the raw look, but it affected the design of the characters. You know, the, 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 a lot of the characters were only composed of two or three sets of colors. When you think of Sub-Zero and Scorpion, well, it was because of you know the, the limited amount of memory we had to work with. And the right. limited um, color palettes and things like that, and so I think it kind of forced us into making some good design choices with the characters that we may not have made had we not mm-hmm. had those constraints. Um, but um, but I think that again, you know, I um, I, uh, I think that we were benefactors to a lot of work that was being done, uh, that, or that had been done prior to us even starting that first MK game.
0: Did that mean that? You knew that the the sort of limited production schedule was going to mean that you'd had to sort of front load all of the stuff you put into the camera and all the stuff that you shot. That you have to kind of have all the costumes perfectly designed so that they would translate to the game. Were you guys thinking that far ahead, or was it uh-huh. much more <laughs> trying things out and seeing what worked?
4: Trying things out and seeing what
0: worked. I mean, I, I was
4: <laughs> I was somewhat familiar with with some of the issues because I had watched the, you know the other teams go through it. Um, yeah. And so I understood, you know, okay, well, this is a problem, or that's a problem, or the limited color palette is is a, is a real problem when you're dealing with, um, you know, digitized graphics. And so I think that, that, um, that we were able to anticipate some of the issues and the choices were based on, you know, those things. Um, but um, uh, we certainly did not sit down and have it all planned out. You know, Ed and I, yeah. um, a lot of it was try something, see how it works, try something, see how it works. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, we had to Find our way pretty quickly again because of the compressed schedule. Um, but you know, at that at that time, it was already that was my third game, so um, I had kind of been through the ringer a couple of
2: times.
0: What made you decide to to part ways with Mortal Kombat? I mean, it was a baby that you had crafted and and sent out into the world, super popular, and Ed still making awesome Mortal Kombat games with a lot of the same team members, a lot of people that you work with. Uh, what, what was your decision there and and uh, you know how how do you feel seeing all the new Mortal Kombat games still coming to market and all of these characters that that were in your head still uh, mean so much to so many people around the world?
4: You know it's amazing seeing all the new product, obviously. it's
0: it's and yeah. and
4: I think you know I, I get asked that question a lot. And for me, um you know I'm almost kind of like a fan, and I look forward to seeing you know the latest interpretations of of you know the characters that I you know had had originated and yeah. um and certainly the improvement in graphics they're able to tell story in ways that we would never have even thought that would be possible you know in games yeah. certainly not in coin-op games but in just in games in general and so it's exciting to see that stuff you know continue to live on um when uh when i left you know josh actually left with me but prior to that um we had been uh, there were some occasions where we were, I think we talk about it in the in the documentary, where we were, you know, groups of us were approached by other publishers, you know, to leave. Mark was involved, in, you know, in a couple of those shenanigans uh, with me uh, in the 90s there. But by the time we had decided to leave, I think, um, um, you know, me in particular, and I think, you know, and again, Josh came along with, but we were looking at opportunities, you know, um, in development and we knew that there were some new consoles that were coming out you know the xbox and the playstation 2 and our understanding yep. was that there was a window of opportunity for us to be able to take advantage of publishers looking for developers and so that had a lot to do with our timing um uh and so um you know there wasn't uh, there wasn't really a um it wasn't so much so that you know that that, that we were um you know um um I, I guess disappointed with kind of the way development was going or anything like that. It was more just, hey, here's an opportunity right now that's that only comes you know so many years. And so taking advantage of that at that particular time, you know we thought was 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 important. But it was very difficult to leave MK because it, you know even even when I left, you know that was I think after MK four, we had done worked on this um, on a spin-off uh, product. Um, but it was clear to me even back then that MK was something that was going to live on forever. You know, as right. a, as, a, as a as as a pop culture icon, it wasn't going anywhere, and it was it was something, you know, when I when you look at um, you know like the Batman's and the Superman's and the Spidermans, mans you know, sort of these these properties that just live on infinitely. I I, I felt like Mortal Kombat had um, a chance to become that, and uh, and and that I think has proven right. You know, you just have to have um, a good iteration of the product to kind of bring it back. You know, um, and uh, and I think as long as that continues, it's going to live on.
0: Well, dude, I was playing the game yesterday on on a stream here, actually. And uh, it's uh, it's amazing to see your characters alongside Terminator and Rambo and the the Joker. I mean, it's, you know, congratulations, man. I mean, it's, uh, you know, from your heart to the world like that is really damn cool. And that's also true with NBA Jam. And Mark, I know that uh, one of the things that that happened with NBA Jam is uh, it also became this massive pop culture phenomenon, NFL Blitz as well. And that brought you entree into uh, sports uh, athletes that were becoming celebrities sort of at, around the same time. It's it's amazing that uh, this was like the Michael Jordan era and everybody knew these athletes outside of the court. Dennis Rodman, all of these people. Do you have... Um, you know, a crazy story or a crazy memory from interacting with some of these NBA All-Stars out there around the time of making the NBA Jam titles?
2: Yeah, it was, uh, it was crazy, the uh, the impact it had actually on the players themselves. Um, I've told the story before, but it's so interesting that uh, in the first um, few weeks of the game launching, uh, I uh, was contacted uh, by representatives of Gary Payton uh, who had not made the cut for the original NBA GM. Uh, he was Ouch. A, he was a rookie year <laughs> but you know if you know Gary Payton he's a real talk, you know trash talker and Yes. guy. And uh, so we you know we asked him for his photographs and you know he took all these pictures and sent them in and you know we got him into the next version of the game uh, you know tournament edition and I actually did special eproms for him. Uh, Then it led to Ken Griffey Jr. wanting to be in the game. Jordan wanted to be in the game because he had pulled out of, you know, licensing of the game right before we launched. Right. Uh, And I even got um, contacted by Matthew Perry, who was on the, you know, brand new show called Friends. Right. Uh, And he was a fan of the game. And he uh, sent his pictures in and said, hey, can you make me, you know, a special version?
3: (laughs) I guy. Up,
2: yeah, he, um, uh, he actually had, uh, he had a bald spot on the back of his head back in those days, and he said, hey, can you paint over that bald spot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the most interesting story was, you know, just Shaq. Shaq uh, immediately really ordered, uh, you know, called to get two copies of the game, uh, one for his house. And then one, they actually put on the team airplane, you know, which was the latest rage back then was, what? The, you know, the best wow. would have their own private jet. So they would carry the game, the Orlando magic from city to city, to city, and they would wheel it into uh, his suite. Uh, and so when I eventually talked to him, he said, yeah, we, we wouldn't go out. We didn't go clubbing. Oh, wow. We sat in the room and we gambled. I've had a lot of people over the years come up and say, hey, I was never really a fan of the NBA, uh, but I was a fan of NBA Jam. Then I became a fan of the NBA. Yep. Seems preposterous to say that that video game could have an impact on the popularity of the NBA, which is this, you know, juggernaut, you know, um, property. But I think it really did, especially back in that era where, uh, you know, I mean, back in those early days, the finals weren't even broadcast live. You know, you'd have finals like, you know, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. That would be 1130 at night, you know, East Coast time. So I think that the, the NBA wasn't as big as it was at the time. And we actually did inflect... Um, you know some of that popularity of the younger crowd is based on the game. It was a
0: perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. It was the culture and and the and the game content and and uh, and uh, superstar athletes, man. It was perfect.
3: Marcos, uh, as responsible, I think for the NBA's, uh, you know, really just blossoming in that area era, as was Jordan and and all the the new people. I talked to uh, David Cern, rest in peace, a couple of years ago at the uh, Hall of Fame. And uh, told him that NBA Jam had made a billion dollars that first year. He had no idea. And he was the marketing guru at the time, but being older, he wasn't as in touch. Had the NBA had someone with Mark's genius to say, hey, how about we make a video game like this to showcase? an NBA talent, and I've had people from around the world tell me too, you know, South America, that they had no idea what the NBA was until that came along, so wow. that was the internet it that globalized was, it. that's yeah. exactly what happened, people fell in love mm. with it, how about players and teams you would never know because back then the NBA only had a couple select games, it was the Knicks, the Bulls, or the Lakers whatever, once yeah. a week There. so now all of a sudden you're familiar with you know, the guys on like the Mavericks or Orlando or whatever so he, he really single-handedly, you know, did That for for the nba i believe
0: which begs the question why the hell is there not new nba jam titles now you know what what is like like honestly like this is the perfect time to capitalize there's amazing superstar athletes out there and and and, uh 2k does an incredible basketball simulation every year but holy crap is it time to have an accessible you know arcade sports mark why why is there no nba jam or NFL Blitz for that matter. Yeah,
3: Mark, why?
0: <laughs> <laughs> After Midway melted down,
2: uh, I did join Electronic Arts. They bought uh, all of the sports games, the rights to those. Uh, yep. Uh, and so I was uh, you know, part of the effort to make the NBA Jam that came out around, I don't know. 2010. One. Yeah. I also worked on the NFL Blitz uh, before leaving to join Zynga, uh, where I'm at today. Uh, and so there was interest to to revive those, but you know you can't go to the well on those every year. Of course, like a sim, it's got to be a, a particular cadence. Uh, yes. But right now with the arcade one-up, you know, business, you know, like I go into Costco, I go, you know, I see these cabinets all over the place. I talked to them last week. I think they're gonna they're gonna outsell maybe two x the original NBA Jam cabinets this year at retail that's uh, incredible and the nba jam arcade one-up title that's out that you can buy you know everywhere is uh, it actually has nba hang time and nba jam tournament edition and hang time has even you know finer tuned gameplay and you know the alley-oops and all that so that, i think they'll live on with uh you know with that that consumer version uh that that coin-op version
0: um, for the home. I guess it's kind of hard to, and it, this probably speaks to the that physicalized kind of, because um, there's a Mortal Kombat arcade machine from Arcade 1UP as well. I'm sure that's doing very well too, but there, it speaks to what you guys built. Like, it's pretty hard to, you know, there's this, collectability element of it and you want to have the whole cabinet sort of as you remember it but there there was also some magic in the making of it all together the hardware and the software all kind of working together and that's what these arcade units kind of recreate and it's hard i think and you guys saw this too through all the home versions of your games it's hard to match that on a super nintendo or a even a playstation 5 right yeah that's true i mean
2: there was a lot of tuning and tweaking that went into those games too to make them have a lot of variety and to hold up. Um, So um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that, uh, that work in that era.
0: You guys are all vets of the business. You've all been doing a lot of things, um, you know, and, and work, worked with midway, but also lots of other companies along the way. And we all know collectively, we all know that, that, that game uh, companies of any kind have kind of lifespans and they, there's an ebb and a flow to it. But it always, it, it, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit and always kind of shocks me that Midway as a brand doesn't persevere, right? Like people just don't really talk about it as a modern game brand as a company that's still creating output out there. And I want to ask each of you, you know, kind of what happened from your perspective with that and... Uh, um, and maybe your you know your favorite memory of what Midway represents for you. Let's we'll start with you, Josh.
1: I mean, I wasn't you know I, I had left Midway at the end of ninety nine so my you know, anything I say in terms of what happened to Midway after that is pure speculation uh, on my end. but you know I yeah, you know, in the context of the film, you know it's it's it was basically you know the industry changed, you know, our, you know the the idea of going to play a game in an arcade just didn't seem to make any sense in many ways, economically or even just, you know, enjoyment-wise when suddenly consoles, you know, were just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the hardware that the arcades had. And so, yeah. you know, so, you know, and it's not, it wasn't just Midway, it was just, you know, arcade gaming in general and stuff. And so, you know, I think, you know, my theory is that as time moved on, uh, you know, Midway had such, um, so much arcade and its DNA that to shift over to, larger form games you know the, the games that people were expecting like up, that would have to be up to a certain scale it was going to be much more difficult and I, and I think there was just a lot of challenges there um in regards to some of my favorite memories you know it's uh, it, it's funny because a lot of people have great memories of the games themselves um i have great memories of making the games themselves you know and and John brought this up before. It's like you know, we we worked crazy hours, and everybody worked crazy hours, and it wasn't like a, you know, a mandated crunch or anything like that. We were, you know, we were young. We just wanted to make great product, and the camaraderie amongst everybody, all working really hard together, at all hours of the night, you know, all knowing that we were we were trying to make the best thing possible. Um, that has always stuck with me. Looking back on, you know, now that I'm older and, you know, I have other obligations, you know, I realized, man, there's no way like, you know, that type of crunch is just insane, you know, yeah. but I, for myself personally, I'm glad I I went through it. And again, it was that, that camaraderie, there was a lot of rivalries at Midway, uh, but there was always underlying all of that. There was always the sense of respect that like, Hey, you know, um, ev- you know, everybody is here for a reason and they're doing good hard work, John.
4: Similar to Josh, I mean, I think certainly the the friendships that, that we made while working together were were incredible. I mean, you know, it's friends, everyone that you know, a lot of the folks that I worked with back then, friends for life. You know, it's it's yeah. you know, we kind of all went through that together, and so that that had a huge huge impact on me personally. Um, and um, and then I think it was just sort of the um, you know the, the the love for for gaming that I think was developed you know through the through the work. Um, and, um, and watching folks like Mark or, or Eugene or, or Josh or Jack Hager or, you know, all, all the folks that, that I was lucky enough to work with, um, watching them put everything they had into, into, into what they did there was very inspiring for me um, as a developer. And so that's something that, you know, beyond Midway, I kind of carried with me. And so I think that's when I look back at it fondly, it's more about the friendships that were made and the, and the, and the good habits that, that I think um, were developed um as josh said it was the work hours were very difficult i don't think you know i was was fortunate that i was in my 20s when 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 i was there because i don't think i could have done it in my in certainly my later years here but um you know but uh but as i said earlier it was more than work it was it for it really just felt like life like we were just living life and life was creating games and 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 when you love it it made it easy
0: awesome mark
2: yeah, so some sad times there. Uh, Ed uh, Boone and I went down with the ship on Midway. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, you know reasons the gears were turning. Uh, you know, Point Op clearly had the technological edge over the consoles, but the consoles were creeping up on us, and so we were always running scared. We knew that maybe our you know our window was you know closing uh to continue to be successful there uh you know we were still 60 frames a second on every game that we would make and the console still weren't quite there Um, right wasn't until we decided to dip our feet into you know doing the console titles original console development where we realized that uh, we didn't have the the production you know kind of management you know professionalism that's required to make, uh, you know, to make a game on schedule. Uh, and and I want to
0: stop you real quick though, uh, and give you props and shout outs to, uh, for Stranglehold and PsyOps, which yeah. I don't know if they were made internally at Midway, but Midway brought them into the world and they were both incredible games. And I get asked about PsyOps in particular all the time.
2: Yeah, Brian Eddy, yeah. No, that was a okay. super young team
0: uh, you know, right, right there in
2: the, in the mix. And what happened though, was, uh, Neil Nicastro, uh, you know, kind of saw the writing on the wall. was taking a lot of pressure, I think from the, maybe the financial community, uh, he died. So he moved out and appointed, you know, a new, uh, president CEO, uh, and that new management, uh, really decided to go all in on console Mm. Uh, and they they gave you know Snoop Dogg millions of dollars to you know to fashion a game for us right Uh, you know they gave you know Shaq millions of dollars to shoot a commercial uh, for Mm. a new basketball game that was being you know developed uh, somewhere else Uh, and so Ed and I were uh, you know seeing this happen all around us you know, these investments of 10, $20 million that didn't make any sense. And, and we, we couldn't stop it. You know, right. we talk, you know, together, we would be in meetings, looking at these pitches and saying, man, this is, this is no chance of success, but it oh, just man. was out of our control to, uh, to continue these different projects. Uh, and so it was a combination of the pressure to get into console, not having the skills uh to you know do the proper production on a game like that uh and uh and also new management that came in that uh you know really uh listen to some of the old school guys uh you know made their own way and and unfortunately drove the game the the company into the ground
0: Wow, man Tim uh you know you're perspective obviously was to be like you were a part of this rocket that was flying and then all of a sudden it didn't fly anymore like the world's yeah. that where there were no more nba like that, oh. that must have been very weird for you right
3: yeah well first of all i i think of uh, I always love the music analogies. Like, like Mark wrote, "I can't get no satisfaction." I, I said before. Yeah. Luckily, he couldn't sing it, so I got to be the singer on the number one hit. <laughs> and then, guess what? Then he had, then he had NFL Blitz, and then he. So there's, there's his, his next, you know, honky tonk woman or whatever. I was the luckiest guy in the world. I was like a session musician for the wrecking crew you know, right. guys who were the beach boys and hundreds of singles so i was that guy so i got this like this uh you know different view than all these guys have outside looking in in a way because i wasn't in the inner sanctum you know i was the, i was the session guy but going back to why we're here josh's film captures this moment this brief history in time stephen hawking's of the video game world it happened like it was like the end of the the silent film and the talkies came in that's where i came in it's like speech mm. was very limited in games I got to go from that that period, from the very beginning, NBA Jam, might as well have had like, you know, 15 or 100 calls in it, you know, you can name Dude, them.
0: you're so right, man. Like, Sinistar was just mind-blowing. Run, 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 beware. Then live. here comes Tim Kitzrow.
3: It was like this, John came in, gave me a script, he said big, he said loud, and I went, he's on fire, rejected, boom, shakalaka. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I got in literally on the ground floor, and on the way out, we're doing thousands, tens of thousands of calls for NHL hits, Slugfest, you know, Blitz. So in that little window, that 10 years or whatever that I was there, you know, it went from the excitement of the arcade to then Napster and the, the music industry was changing. Everything was changing. So, yeah, these guys said the writing was on the wall. And then, unfortunately, it crashed and burned. But maybe the way it should have, because there was so much talent, so much energy, like a great band, it had to implode at some point. Uh, when I go back to conventions, I see a dad coming in with his kid. He's playing the arcade, and there's a three-year-old in a stroller with a download game and I went, there's the two different generations, you know? Yeah. It's like it's yeah. like watching a 70 millimeter film on a, you know, on an iPhone or something now, you <laughs> right. know, it's like the, the right. difference, so that's people want easier, they want cheaper, they want faster. What I miss most is the community that we had, even as I said, I wasn't as a part of the, the social crew, but that game community that I feel now, and the, seeing the people around the arcades, that's what I miss, like, it's a new world, you know? Yeah, but 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 th- thank God there are conventions and, and there are guys like you. Like there's a whole generation of people who grew up when this will never happen again. And I'm just so lucky to be a part of it, I, as, as all I, these guys I, are.
0: I don't know about that, Tim, because you know we the other thing uh, you know, we've all been around the block for a while too, and watching this <laughs> stuff. They're like things like Arcade One Up. Who would have predicted that and it becoming such a big success? Yeah. Like it's created this whole category. And you know, Josh's movie I think is going to shine a light. A very I think it's inta- gonna- Yep. Yeah, and so people are going to like wake up a little bit again, and this is an industry that likes cycles and likes to kind of uh, celebrate itself yeah. when it, it pivots in that direction. Um, I'm going to end with you giving me the the game that best typifies what Midway represents for each of you individually, and it doesn't have to be one you worked on. What's the game that that first pops into your mind? Uh, let's start with you, John.
4: Nark. I would say Nark. Easy
0: one. That's awesome. All right, Mark.
2: You know, well, Robotron is my favorite game of all time. And the reason That's awesome. it's enjoying Williams Electronics at the time. Um, but uh, for me, you know, looking at Mortal Kombat and the, you know, the excitement that that generated with the blood and the gore and the violence, you know, spawning, you know, <laughs> films, uh, you know, is really at the top of the, you know, at the top of the heap for uh, what is Midway.
0: And Tim?
3: As great as NBA Jam was, uh, I think NFL Blitz Mark really hit his stride with with taking it to that next, the irreverent level that Midway's known for. When he he took everything that he had done, major league sport, as, as uh, it can be summed up by saying, totally unnecessary, but a whole lot of fun to watch. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. And Josh, you you uh, you've been documenting this with a with a passion and. Uh, Ah, uh, probably a lot of that same kind of uh, mid twenties passion that you first brought into the into the like never sleeping type passion. Um, so Midway's been on your mind a lot. What what what's the first game that pops into your mind
1: nowadays? I mean, I I, I would say for the most part it would be Nark, just because it it was just the the beginning of so many things. Uh, but like what Mark said, uh, Robotron was w- still one of my favorite games. It, it, it affected me so much back in the 80s when it came <laughs> out. So, so you can see you know, see how uh, you know, the, the attitude from Robotron got into NARC and, and so on.
0: Josh, your movie is going to be uh, released very soon, and people are going to be able to watch this everywhere. You've been in festivals and everywhere. Where can people watch Insert Coin?
1: it's going to be released on virtual cinemas uh, partnering up with alamo draft house on demand on november 25th so um you know so it'll be right now it's uh we're, we're doing this thing with uh with independent theaters all around the country um, you know right now because of you know the current conditions people are not necessarily going to theaters so a lot of local indie theaters are you know are hurting and so we're partnering up with them where Let's say there's a local theater near you. Um, you can actually buy virtual tickets to see a screening of the film through that venue. And uh, oh, so wow. here in Chicago, yeah. So here in Chicago, I'm super happy. Uh, there's a there's a theater called Facets, and a great venue, um, known for their uh, independent cinema. And people who love Facets can support them by by basically going to their site and ordering the film through them, and they can stream that night or however you know whatever the window is going to be. Um, Alamo Drafthouse is the main partner that we're working with and they have theaters all over the country and they've been they've been amazing um getting the word out on it and uh and yeah so November 25th it comes out uh virtual cinemas and then shortly uh after they'll be on uh, on various uh video on demand platforms. amazing and, and can, man. Yeah. And you can go to insertcoindoc.com um, on the screenings page you'll see the listings of all the different theaters that we're partnering with.
0: So I've never heard of that. So the theater is you actually can buy a ticket and support the theater, but you can exactly. watch it at home and yeah. in, a, in a safe way at home. I love it. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's interesting. It's something that's, that's it's been around for a little while, but it's, it, but it's since the pandemic, um, it's really has grown a lot. Um, after South by Southwest got canceled, you know, the, the theater industry had to really, you know, think quick about, hey, how do we still, you know, get people to watch new movies? And, uh, and so this is a resident a lot of. You know, when you have films like um, like Trolls World Tour, you know, so go, yeah. they bypassed, you know, went right to virtual cinemas and stuff. So this is kind of a byproduct, of
0: that. Wow, that's great. And everybody needs to see this movie. It's wonderful. And you guys have all, you know, crafted and, and delivered such incredible contributions to this medium and to this wonderful company. This was a real thrill for me, guys. Uh, that was Mark Turmel, John Tobias, Tim Kittrow, and Josh Sway. The movie is called Insert Coin. Make sure you guys play that. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. And we will see you soon. Until then, play forever.